Open your Bibles, if you will, to Second Chronicles chapter 34. We continue our studies in this great book of the history of ancient Judah. We'll be in chapter 34, verse 8. We'll continue to verse 18. Second Chronicles 34, 8 to 18. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he, Josiah, sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maaseah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. They came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel and from all Judah and Benjamin and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. They gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone, timber for binders, and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And the men did the work faithfully. Over them were set Jahath and Obadiah the Levites, the sons of Merari, and Zechariah and Meshulam of the sons of the Kohathites to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. And Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king all that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book and Shaphan read from it before the king the grass withers the flowers fall and the word of our God abides forever amen father in heaven we thank you for your word we thank you for this wonderful occasion oh your wonderful gift to your people of old you restored to them the lost word and so father we pray that we would learn to love your word that we would love the revelation of your will and salvation in the holy scriptures bless us as we study this passage here tonight we pray in jesus name amen william tyndale's dying wish was granted by the lord the english reformer's life had been dedicated to providing the bible to the people of his country in their native language Instead of commending and aiding Tyndale in this noble cause, the Roman Catholic Church and its royal partners in England, Europe, had opposed him with great violence, in fact, with fury. And so Tyndale spent years in hiding while he was translating the Bible into English, printing and distributing copies of the Holy Scriptures, smuggling them into his native land. In 1553, however, Tyndale was betrayed to the imperial authorities in the city of Antwerp 
And in 1536, he was condemned as a heretic. Shortly afterwards, Tyndale was publicly executed by strangulation, and then his body was consigned to the flames. Now, as he was tied to the stake and awaiting this doom, he prayed aloud this dying request I mentioned. It was this, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. England's Henry VIII had supported the church and its anti-scripture policy by making it a capital offense even to possess an English copy of the Bible. And since the great masses of the people neither spoke nor read Latin, the only permitted translation of the Bible, the purpose of the law was, of course, to keep the people from reading the word of God themselves. Now, ostensibly, the church argued that the scripture was too obscure. It was dangerous for ordinary Christians to study on their own. But actually, the law was uh, against possessing an English Bible was intended to defend the church's authority against the teaching of Holy Scripture because the Scriptures exposed the fundamental errors on which the Roman church was established. In particular, the English reformers had come to realize, we think of the influence of Martin Luther in this matter, but he was not the only one, they'd come to realize that God's word declares that sinners are justified through faith in Jesus Christ, faith alone in Christ. Well, the church denied and opposed the biblical doctrine of justification. And this meant that the church, by withholding the scriptures, was withholding the apostolic teaching of salvation. What a tragedy it was. And, and so when Tyndale prayed for God to open the eyes of the king of England, he was pleading for the Lord to move Henry, to change his policy, to give the people access to Bibles that they could read. And by means of their own knowledge of Scripture, that great numbers of English men and women would be saved through faith in Jesus. Tyndale once had declared his intention during a debate with a Roman Catholic opponent. He put it this way, If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the Scripture than thou. Well, God answered Tyndale's dying prayer a mere two years later. Henry VIII became embroiled in his own conflict with the Pope. As you may know, it was over his desire to secure a male heir for his line by divorcing his Spanish wife, who, by the way, was the niece of the emperor. And as part of his establishment in that cause, he established an English church independent from Rome. And as part of it, Henry commanded not only that the scriptures be permitted uh, in English, but he actually ordered that in every parish church, an English copy of the scripture should be provided all through his realm. And the result was the unleashing of God's word in England so that the church was reformed according to the Bible's teaching and multitudes of people came to saving faith in Jesus. You see, the word of God had been lost to the people, hidden away within the very church designed to proclaim the gospel message. But now God's word had been found. It was restored to its rightful place in the hearts and minds of the people. Well, parallels between Tyndale and his many fellow reformers and proponents of Scripture, parallels between them and King Josiah of, Eng of, of, of Judah were frequently drawn during the time of the Reformation. Josiah was the last godly king of Judah. He ascended to the throne of David at the age of eight. And as soon as he possessed practical authority, 
He began purging the realm of the high places where false worship was being practiced. And he was particularly ferocious in assaulting the shrines where the idols were. But the great event of Josiah's life took place when he was 26 years old, the 18th year of his reign. And it happened as a result of his godly concern for the physical upkeep of the Lord's house in Jerusalem. Like any good leader, when Joseph set upon this task, he put his staff to work, developing a plan for the restoration of the temple. Verse 8 says, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maaseah, the governor of the kingdom, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. Now, these were godly men, and their families would play a leading role during the Reformation. In fact, during our, our studies of Jeremiah, we've already interacted with Shaphan and several of his sons, Ahikam, and other ones who will be involved in promoting and protecting Jeremiah. And they, were, they played a leading role in the generation of this time. And just as it is today, the, uh, the building project began with a fundraising drive. Verse 9 tells us the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel and from Judah and Benjamin and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, it's very noteworthy there that Josiah sent his representatives outside of his realm. He's the king of Judah, which was just two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, although there was a remnant of other tribes within it. But he had begun reaching out to the lands of the former northern kingdom where there were remnants of all those tribes, most of whom had been lost. And he invited them to contribute. I think there's every reason to believe that these gifts were sought with a generous spirit. Josiah wanted all Israel to be given the privilege of contributing to the house of the Lord. Leslie Allen notes that they all had a stake in the temple just as they all had the right to worship at the house of the Lord. Now, we're not told the specifics of how the fundraising was conducted, although it's likely that appeals were made by each tribe to the clans and families they represented for free will offerings that would be given for the repair of God's house. And in this way, the money began to come in, and the royal officials were told, place it into the care of the high priest, and he had charge of supervising the project. Verse 9, they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord. Now, that procedure sets a good example for Christians today. It's certainly true that the civil government has a positive interest in promoting the well-being of the church But it is the people of God, it is the members of the church by the inspiration, the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We are the ones who have the responsibility for the upkeep and collection and and construction of church buildings. We are not to look to the civil magistrate and the secular authorities for the monies we need. No, the Lord provides it through the generosity of his people. It wasn't money from the royal treasury that resulted in this temple restoration but it was freely given offerings from the people under the guidance of the clergy. Now, the Apostle Paul considered this kind of generosity for the financial needs of the church to be an important mark of God's grace in a believer's life. He said this in 2 Corinthians 8, 7, As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. He was talking about financial generosity for the church. If the ancient Israelites had a good incentive to give sacrificially for the physical reconstruction of the temple, 
Uh, Christians today have even more reasons to show financial generosity because of the example provided to us by Jesus. Paul put it this way, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Now, some details are given here about the work of the temple proceeded. The priest gave the necessary money, verse 10, to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for the repairing and restoration of the house. And so carpenters were paid, and there were people quarrying stone. They had to be paid. Uh, there, was, uh, there was money provided for the timber, for the binders and beams of the buildings that the king of, kings of Judah had let go to ruin. Now, there, notice that contrast. On the one hand, between the zealous laborers of Josiah's time, so zealous to, up, to, to repair the house of the Lord, with, on the other hand, the, the disinterest of the former kings. They had made a ruin of Jerusalem, not because they neglected the temple building. They neglected God, and a simple symptom of that was a neglect of the buildings. Well, this contrast is to the workman's credit. Verse 12 says, they did the work faithfully. What a simple statement, but isn't that what we long for? According to Jesus, it is what we should long for. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, he will say when he returns to those who have served him. They did the work faithfully, so it should always be. When we offer our gifts and talents to the work of Christ's church, however it is that we serve, the household of God deserves our best effort and firm integrity should always characterize all of our work. Now, a final note may be a little surprising to us because we're told that the oversight of the construction project was entrusted to the Levites. Verse 12, over the workers were set Jahath and Obadiah of the Levites, the sons of Merari, and Zechariah and Meshulam of the sons of the Kohathites to have oversight. Now, I think not many churches today would put the pastoral staff in charge of the building committee. I'm not sure I would advocate that they would. But we should remember, though, in this case, that the Levites had been entrusted. Their charge was for the physical property of the temple and its articles. They would have been most familiar with the building. They should have been. They would have understood its needs for repair. But it's perhaps even more surprising in verse 12 that we're told that the Levitical musicians, those who were skillful with instruments of music, were placed over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. So, so now the choir has gotten involved in a construction project. Now that's a scenario that must shock anyone who has not observed firsthand the attention to details shown by any good church music director, nor observed the overall dedication that is required of skillful musicians. In many respects, they were highly qualified. Matthew Henry endorses this. He notes that that it was an evidence that these musicians were men of sense and ingenuity, particularly that their genius lay towards mathematics, which qualified them very much for their trust. Well, maybe the best lesson, the main lesson for all this busy labor taking place at the temple was that every kind of gift was needed. Every contribution was valuable and important. The strong arms of the burden bearers was just as vital as the directing mind of the high priest and the accountants and the musical staff. 
Philip Ryken praises Josiah for the skillful and effective delegation he showed. It's a model, he urges, for church leaders today. Ryken says, Josiah delegated important responsibilities to gifted people, and he trusted them to do their jobs. When people are entrusted with important responsibilities, it brings out the best in them. And leaders such as Josiah have good instincts about whom they can trust. Now, it would not, I suppose, be realistic to suppose that all this work went on without any strife or problems. But in principle, Josiah's temple repair project should be an example for Christians today, that we work together to provide for the physical assets necessary for the worship of God, as well as the ministries through which the gospel is made a blessing to many people's lives. The church is a busy place. Not only the building committee, but the nursery, the Sunday school, the various ministries by which God is served and the people are blessed. Now, interesting as these details are regarding the temple repair project, the main significance of this is the discovery that was made at this time by the high priest Hilkiah. Now, the Chronicles record here follows carefully the narrative of 2 Kings 22, 8 to 10, and it goes like this. Hilkiah was bringing out the money, verse 14, that had been brought into the house of the Lord. And so presumably in one of the temple storerooms or perhaps in the back of some long-neglected shelf while he was uh, putting money on the shelf or taking it off to distribute it, he found, verse 4, the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Now, we should not envision Hilkiah lifting from the shelf a tightly woven book of the kind that we use today. Rather, it was almost certainly a large scroll that he discovered, the contents of which were found to be a portion of the writings of Moses, a portion of the law of the Torah. Now, we should consider this accident, in fact, the Lord's blessing. I think of how he says in 1 Samuel, he who honors me will I honor. And the Lord blessed him for the care being shown to his temple. Raymond Dillard comments, for the chronicler, the discovery of the law book was part of the Lord's reward for Josiah's faithfulness. Well, realizing at least to some extent what he had found, Hilkiah hastened and went to Josiah's secretary, Shaphan, and he spoke the notable words of verse 15, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And taking the scroll from the priest, Shaphan brought the book to the king, and he made it part of what seems to have been his daily report. Verses 16 and 17, All that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it to the hand of the overseers and the workmen. By the way, that shows that Josiah was paying a pretty keen attention to this project at the temple. But when all of those details were given, those more mundane things, Shaphan passed on the momentous news. Verse 18, Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. Now, there's some questions that follow from this account, starting with the question, what exactly is the identity of this book that was discovered inside the temple? Now, there is some debate among scholars, but the overwhelming consensus of evangelical commentators is that Hilkiah had stumbled upon a copy of the book of Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy. 
It's, Deuteronomy is the last of the five books of Moses that was given to the tribes of Israel on the brink of their entry to the promised land. They were the second generation of the Exodus, the children of those who survived the wilderness entry. And the second law, the Deuteronomos, was given to them. And it was the final and most momentous step of the Exodus as they entered the promised land. Moses, you remember, was not going to cross the Jordan River with them. He, the time had come for him to die. And so Deuteronomy was given as a summation of God's law for this second generation that would enter Canaan, establishing the nation in the land that was given by the Lord. In this respect, in many ways, Deuteronomy then was the constitution for the nation of Israel. In fact, if you study carefully the later historical books, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings particularly, the, the point of the, when they speak of the law of Moses, they primarily quote from Deuteronomy. In fact, much of those later historical books are rightly considered sermons preached from the text of the book of Deuteronomy. It, in a particularly singular way, was the constitution of the nation of Israel in the promised land. And it restated the Ten Commandments. It provided the Lord's detailed instructions for the life they were beginning as a people. And again, in this respect, Deuteronomy was, in a practical sense at least, the most relevant of the five books of Moses. We wouldn't say it was most relevant ultimately, but it was of enormous relevance for a king like Josiah. We realize now that its loss was a tragedy that had clearly played a large role in the decline of the nation prior to Josiah just as its discovery would provide a powerful impetus to the reformation he had already begun. Now, there's several pieces of evidence that I think conclusively argue that this book that is discovered actually is Deuteronomy, starting with the label, it is the book of the law of the Lord, verse 14. Now, it turns out that at many times in Deuteronomy, that very description is given by Moses of the book, this book of the law is stated by Moses in Deuteronomy 28.61, 29.21, and many other references. Moreover, if we go down to verse 24, we're told of some of the contents of this scroll that Hilkiah had found. It included the curses that are written in the book. Now, that clearly is Deuteronomy. If you know Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 69, has those great and terrible curses which actually fell upon the people. When they, what would happen if they broke the covenant with the Lord? And so the reference to curses is a clear reference to the book of Deuteronomy. Moreover, many of the themes that are going to be highlighted, and in fact, in some respects, already have been highlighted in Josiah's Reformation, are those that are emphasized in Deuteronomy. In particular, the centralization of worship at the temple Deuteronomy 12, and the proper administration of the Passover, that'll be the next chapter, and that's Deuteronomy 16, 1 to 8. Well, given the importance of Deuteronomy to the life of the king of the Israel, kingdom of Israel, we may wonder with some dismay, how was it ever lost in the first place? And the clear answer is the same as it is today, when God's word is lost or And that is the neglect of the people of God who no longer have a reverent interest in the word of the Lord. The book of the Lord, of the law of the Lord was misplaced. It had been set aside by generations of priests and certainly of kings who had little use for divine revelation. They were busy chasing after the idols of the world and walking in the ways of the world and all its evil. 
And as we study the record of the kings, not only of Israel, but also of Judah, is scarred by generations of wicked and idol-worshiping leaders whose disdain well accounts for the loss of this vital portion of the canon of God's word. Moreover, it may have been that a godly king like Hezekiah might have secured it in a safe place. It was supposed to be and right next to the Holy of Holies. But it might have been put away during a time when there was a threatened invasion or a siege. Someone like Hezekiah may have done that. Certainly, it might have been the case that godly priests during the reign of extremely wicked kings like Ahaz and particularly, most recently, Manasseh, they may have hidden it so that the king would not find it and be able to destroy it. Well, however we may account for the losing of the book of the law of the Lord, its rediscovery was the greatest boon for Josiah and his generations. Now, we know from our study of Jeremiah and his criticisms that even during Josiah's Reformation, many, many of the common people, of, of the officials, they were continuing in idol worship. The king was devoted to reformation, but the people and many of the officials, many of the priests, the prophets, the paid clergy, they were not. That was a real problem. But Josiah himself was a zealous reformer, a promoter of true religion and biblical truth. He was indeed a forerunner to the Protestant reformers of the 16th century, men like Martin Luther and William Tyndale those who longed for sound doctrine of the true gospel to be spread far and wide and who labored to bring the practices of the church into conformity with God's word. When the Lord answered William Tyndale's prayer in 1538 and he opened the eyes of the king of England so that English Bibles were placed into all the churches of his realm, well, the result was light from God, that shined into the darkness of that society. That's what happens when the Bible has been lost, but then is found. David sang to the Lord in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And what is true for individuals who discover the truth of God's word is equally true for any nation, for the church, when its message is restored. Well, in light of Hilkiah's momentous discovery, these words, I have found the book of the law of the Lord, and this gift from God that is so highly valued by Josiah, I want us to reflect on the value and the importance of the sacred scriptures. This discovery of the book of the law of the Lord reminds us, first of all, how precious is God's word to the hearts of his people. I think the portion of scripture that most wonderfully speaks of how precious scripture is, is Psalm 19, that poem from David. And there he notes the many precious qualities of the Bible. In Psalm 19, 7 to 9, David describes the scriptures as perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true and righteous altogether. Now I would ask you, is there anything comparable that we might possess of which these superlatives might be said? The answer is no. The Bible is perfect, sure, right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true and righteous altogether. How precious it is. But then we think of what are the effects of God's word when it is read or preached and believed. And David goes on, he he says it has the effect of reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, and enduring forever. Now, imagine being a, a marketer at a book company 
and you're trying to sell a book, you're trying to market this product that has these effects. It will revive your soul. It will make you simple person wise. It will rejoice your heart. It will enlighten your eyes. It will endure forever. That this is the book of all books. And in fact, that's exactly what the Bible is. These are the very blessings received by those who trust and study God's holy word. Now, the preciousness of the Holy Scriptures may be estimated by an awareness of what it contains. It is the written revelation of the Word of God. Martin Luther, promoting so heavily this truth in his day in the Reformation, he put it this way, let him who would hear God speak read the Holy Scriptures. Furthermore, in addition to it's many valuable contents. There's valuable history in the Bible. There's certainly instruct, essential instruction and moral content and character. But the principal content of the Holy Scriptures is the knowledge of God and his one way of saving sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the message of this book. James Boyce says this, God has provided a special revelation designed to lead those who do not know God and in many cases did not want to know God. But this book leads them to a saving knowledge of him. How precious is this book? Now, in addition to the incomparable information provided by the Holy Scriptures, believers value it because of the power that God puts to work by means of the Holy Spirit through the reading and hearing of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, describes how the, God uses his word to open our hearts to the truths about our spiritual needs. He says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of, of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Oh, how precious is a book that has that power. More important yet, it is by God's word and God's word alone that sinners come to saving faith and possess eternal life. Paul said in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Peter added so memorably, he says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. How precious is a book that possesses that power. Now this power of God's word was experienced by a Chinese man whose name was Zhao Hu Huang. And he was living in Germany with his wife Kirsten. Zhao was a Buddhist. His wife was a Western secular unbeliever. But she wanted to get a special birthday gift for her husband. And so she sought in the nearby bookstores for a book that was written in the Chinese language. But to her dismay, the only such book she could find for sale was a Chinese translation of the Bible. Well, she wasn't very happy about that, but she nonetheless bought it, hoping that her husband would appreciate the gesture. He he said he, he missed his native language. It was the only thing written in Chinese that she could find. Well, he was not at all pleased to receive a Bible, but he did long to, to, to read and see his native tongue, and so he began reading the Scriptures anyway. And as he did so, he began to be struck by the truth revealed in the Bible's pages. Before long, he had to admit he was becoming persuaded. Yes, 
He believed God's word. Now, this in turn was very displeasing to his wife. She's a Westerner who had rejected Christianity. That's why she married a Buddhist after all. And so they came into conflict over the book. And and so Kirsten began to read it simply to argue more effectively against her husband and his burgeoning faith. In the process, she was persuaded. And before long, she professed herself a believer in Jesus. And so they began studying their Chinese Bible together. And they grew in their faith. Soon they realized from the Bible that they were to be part of the church. They needed fellowship. They needed the support of other believers. So they found a church where the Bible was read and taught where they could hear the faithful preaching of God's word, and soon they were baptized as followers of Christ. They continued to grow as his disciples. You see, their experience varied in its circumstances in the lives of millions of different people. It shows the power of God's word to save sinners, to mold lives in godliness. It proves how precious is the book of God's word when it is discovered and believed. Now, in light of this preciousness of the book that Hilkiah found, a portion of the Word of God, Matthew Henry comments on how blessed it is for any generation in which copies of the Bible are plentifully available, translated into the language of the common people. Henry was writing about his own Puritan times in England, and he wrote of how thankful he was that the book of the law and the gospel is not lost. It is not scarce. He says, Bible are jewels, but thanks be to God, they are not rarities. The fountain of the waters of life is not a spring shut up or a fountain sealed, but the streams of it in all places make glad the city of our God. That is, of course, a quote from Psalm 46. And yet it is true that this plentiful availability of God's word is not universally true throughout the world. And this is why many diligent Christians have taken up the labor of translating the scripture in in the spirit of men like William Tyndale. And even right now, many of our brothers and sisters are busy translating into the language of every tribe, tongue, and nation the word of God in this way seeking to fulfill Jesus' mandate that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Luke twenty four forty seven. Now we should note the detail that's found in verse 8 of Second Chronicles 34. It says that when the book of God's law was discovered, Shaphan read from it before the king. Now here we find to find what is the primary work of the church of Jesus Christ even today, namely the reading and the preaching of the Holy Scriptures so that the people of God are taught its contents. That is the primary work definitely given to the church. It's important for us to emphasize it today. Today, particularly in America, Bible-believing churches have become preoccupied in, in, in very significant ways into the public affairs of the time. And of course, we have an interest. We're citizens of our secular realm. We care about evils going on. We want to give general wisdom. But it is never the primary work. It's not remotely the central work of the church to be involved in the public affairs of the day. The primary work of the church is the reading and preaching and teaching of the Holy Scriptures so that God would be known and his way of salvation salvation through Jesus Christ would be publicized. I I think of Revelation chapter 1, that great vision that John the Apostle saw on the island of Patmos, where Jesus in his exalted glory, dressed in the garb of the high priest, reveals himself. And there's there's a vision there of the church. And if you remember what the vision was, 
The seven churches were represented by seven lampstands. Now, what is a lampstand? It's something on which you place a light. We are not ourselves the light. It's not we that we preach and all the great things about our church, our programs, all the benefits that we have to give to you, marketing ourselves. No, no, no. We are the stand on which the light of God's word is to be set as Jesus shows in that vision. Uh, Consider, for instance, the counsel that the Apostle Paul gave to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we're told that in the last days there will be times of difficulty, and it reads like, in many ways, a typical church today, all kinds of problems, and Timothy's dealing with it. But listen to the counsel that Paul gave him, 2 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have become acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul elaborates, all scripture is is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What is Paul saying to, to Timothy in this very difficult church situation? Timothy, preach the Bible. Teach the Bible. Get people to read the Bible. That is the work given to the church. And so he, he wraps up that whole exhortation with the famous words, preach the word. Preach the word. This is the primary work of the church. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Well, as a final application, we should note that the Bible must not only be preached and heard, but it must also be read by all of God's people. The scriptures must be read in the church. We have as our one of our elements of worship in the morning service the public reading of scripture. And I, I find it amusing, as I know some of you do, because I give a brief explanation before it's to be read. And sometimes visitors believe that's the sermon and they have something of a shock that comes to them about 10 minutes later. But why do we do that? Why do we add 10 minutes to the worship service, delaying the whole thing? Because the New Testament says in 1 Timothy, let us not leave off the public reading of scripture. And so the public reading of Scripture with a brief, suitable description is a a biblically mandated element of worship. The church is to read the Scripture, but it's not only in the church. My Bible must be read in the home. We must, particularly think of families that are gathered together for family worship. It must be read by Christian individuals. By the way, let me say to you, it is only you who can read your own Bible. It's one thing to be a member of a Bible-believing church like Second Presbyterian Church, to be part of the evangelical movement. And yet, for you, yes, you, college student, you, busy businessman, uh, all of us in our various walks of life, if our Bibles remain on our shelf, they will do us no good. We each must read the Word of God ourselves as an act of our own piety and worship to the Lord. We read the Bible not merely to acquire more information. Oh, we do. We need that information. But it's by the Word of God that the life of God comes into our hearts each day and we have grace to walk in faith. We must read the Bible reverently in the fear of God. The very fear, as we continue, we see will be modeled in the response that Josiah gives to what Shaphan read. We'll pick up there, Lord willing, in our next sermon. The Bible must be read aloud. It must be read privately. And the word of God must be shared with others. 
so that they too may receive eternal life and the forgiveness of sin, all through faith in God's word and its message of Jesus Christ. Remember how Paul put it in Romans 10. He said, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, it is true that if you begin reading your Bible, if you start reading God's word, if you start sitting under sound preaching, you are likely to be greatly challenged and sometimes a little alarmed and distressed by what you hear from the pulpit or you read in the pages of Scripture. And that is because the Bible teaches truths from God that confront our worldly way of thinking. The Bible insists on precepts for living that often radically challenge the way that we have been living. When you look in John chapter 6, I'll conclude with this. You see that this very phenomenon was very disturbing to the disciples who followed Jesus. In John 6, Jesus had preached to a great crowd of people after he had fed the 5,000, but there was a much larger crowd than that. And then Jesus began teaching the word of God, and the disciples noticed that what he said was singularly unpopular. By the way, John 6 is filled with biblical doctrines of salvation, with the Reformed doctrines, we would note, of of salvation, challenging unbelief and secular humanism. And the disciples were distressed. They noted that many people, because the Bible had been taught, they had simply walked away. When Jesus was offering goods and services, that was great. But he insisted, by the way, this is true for us today, if we just gave goods and services, if we just marketed a good experience, we would probably have more people, more money, bigger buildings, all more splendid. But the work of the church is to preach the word of God, proclaiming Christ, the knowledge of God and Christ as the way of salvation. That's what Jesus was doing. And the people were leaving and the disciples were grousing about it. Well, Jesus asked them a pointed question. Do you want to go away as well? That is always the challenge. It's the question when we read the Bible, when we hear it being preached. What will we say? Will we receive the word of God in all of its often uncomfortable truths? Well, Peter is the one who gave Jesus the answer. It's a response to God's word that all of us who have felt its precious power, we've realized how precious the Bible is. As David said, sweeter than honey on the comb. Oh, so precious in the doctrine of salvation by the gift of God through his son. The the Bible, which has power to work in our lives with faith and eternal life, that's how we should receive the word of God. And Peter gave this immortal answer, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So it is that God's precious word, discovered in the days of Judah's King Josiah to the blessing of his people, made available to us by great pain suffered by our spiritual forefathers who were determined that God's word would be in the hands of the people. It is the word of eternal life, precious and powerful by the grace of God to give salvation to everyone who hears and believes in the Savior whose gospel is found in the precious book of God's word. Father in heaven, oh, how we thank you for your word. And we have experienced light shining into our minds and our hearts, renewing our wills. But Father, principally granting to us life from heaven, 
through that gospel that tells us that Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead that we might have eternal life. Oh, Father, cause us to account your word precious. Like Matthew Henry, Lord, we thank you for so many different kinds of copies of the Bible. But Lord, let ours be open. Let them be read. Let them be preached and studied. Let the message of your word be shared with those who still remain in darkness that the words of eternal life would be heard and believed and the glory of your grace would give salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.